0: Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, Weekdays, 1230 to 3, 770
1: CHQR. So over the weekend, really fascinating and I think important piece of journalism ran in the National Post. Uh, Taking a deep look at uh, really what's been, I think, for this country a defining story over the last year. We just passed the one-year anniversary uh, of the announcement that uh, 215 unmarked graves had been discovered using ground-penetrating radar, the former residential school in Kamloops. Now, since then, other similar discoveries have been made elsewhere, and it's prompted quite a conversation about the legacy uh, of residential schools. Uh, you know some of the many issues uh, around the, you know the whole premise of truth and reconciliation. But maybe somewhere along the way. Uh, Some of the facts got lost in the shuffle. What is it that we've been finding at these schools? What does it tell us about these schools? We know uh, that children were forced to go to those schools. We know uh, that many children died at those schools. You know, certainly at a higher rate than we were seeing in in the general population. We're talking about years where, where children did die of diseases they just don't die of anymore. That was an issue with these schools. Safety was an issue with these schools. You know, there was a problem with fires at at some of these schools, et cetera. So we knew and we've known uh, that children perished at these schools. And that in many cases, uh, they were buried at or near these schools. But like I say, maybe some of the conversation went in a different direction. And kind of lost sight about what was going on here. So that's the subject uh, that Terry Glavin has delved into. In in a really long and in-depth piece over the weekend, it's called The Gear of the Graves, How the World's Media Got It Wrong, and Residential School Graves. Much more as well on his own uh, Substack page, therealstory.substack.com. Author, journalist, columnist Terry Glavin joining us here this afternoon. Uh, Terry, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. This took a lot of work, obviously, and, and I think you knew um, maybe what, what some of the reaction might be given the, the sensitive nature of the subject. But let's start at the beginning. What, what was the moment for you that, that you knew that, that there was uh, another side of the story that needed to be told? Uh,
2: May 28, 2021. The day the story broke. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, right off the bat... Uh, the major media got it wrong. The Kamloops people never claimed to have discovered a mass grave. I don't think, in fact, they tried to studiously, you know, assiduously avoid the word discovery. Mm -hmm. Uh, Before, that was, I guess, a late Thursday. Before the weekend was over, the flags were down on all government buildings. There were national marches, there was mourning, there, was, there, there were protests, there were, you know, hundreds of shoes left in front of Catholic cathedrals and churches. And I think what set in train that weekend uh, was a kind of national psychotic episode. And I say this as somebody who has argued for the proposition that residential schools constituted cultural genocide. I've co-authored a book with the survivors of St. Mary's uh, uh, Indian Mission in uh, British Columbia. Um, that, that is when I first noticed that something was going wrong. And with every one of these alleged discoveries, which were not discoveries, a pattern set in. And the pattern was that the local indigenous people were not the sources of the great shock horror headlines that went around the world. That in most cases, if the local First Nations did not announce anything, they did not announce what they were alleged to have announced. And before the summer was over, everybody had it in their heads that 1,300 burials had been found at a series of residential schools and shock discoveries, and statues were toppled, and 50 churches across the country were vandalized. Several were burned to the ground. Uh, flags were uh, at half-mast on government buildings for five months. Canada was hauled before the United Nations Human Rights Council. And uh, I just thought it was about time somebody noticed this, that something was desperately wrong, uh, dangerously wrong, disturbingly wrong, about something, something happened in Canada last year and it had practically nothing to do with anything that the local indigenous people wanted. And in fact, it had very, very little to do, the conversation had very little to do with what the national aboriginal leadership wanted.
1: Right, and that's an important point.
2: This is a story about white people losing their brains.
1: Right. So let's take a step back. What was the story? What should the story have been?
2: Well, I think the the original story. I mean, you know, on thir- I guess it was a Thursday afternoon. Uh, chief Rose Casimir, fine, fine chief, fine, fine leader at Kamloops, put out. I don't even know if it was. We could call it a news release, although it appeared on the in the news section of the Kamloops website, and said that you know, preliminary findings were such that uh, suggested that the stories. Uh, uh, about children being buried in, in the vicinity of the residential school there uh, were, were, were true stories. Okay. Um, I mean, she later walked that back, and, and, you know, she probably shouldn't have used the word confirmed, because, uh, you know, by the following Monday she was already saying, hold on, these are preliminary findings, we don't know, and the uh, the archaeologist was saying, uh, you know, eh, we have to, you know, you'd have to excavate before you could say we've confirmed anything. I, I don't, I don't criticize the, the, the indigenous leadership in this 5,500 word piece that I've just finished right. at all, actually. Um, but when you look at each of these cases, uh, a not particularly subtle pattern begins to emerge, and it is really, really quite disturbing. You know, uh, we we basically had this 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 you know alleged long overdue national reckoning, even though we have one every five years or so, uh, and all of these crazy things happened, and they were not based on the facts of what the local indigenous people were saying. In the case of uh, of uh, Saint Eugene's, for instance, uh, Cranbrook. Uh, if memory serves, 251 or 281. Uh, You know, 281 residential school graves discovered. And, of course, you know, Chief Joseph there had to try to patiently explain, I guess the next day, no, uh, it wasn't an Indian residential school grave. Uh, You know, it was actually a white cemetery. Um, and Indigenous people over time were buried there. There was a residential school built, and there was a hospital. It's you know, There are Catholics up there. They bury, they bury their dead there. Over time, the graves, you know, the little wood, wooden crosses, and they tend to burn. Sometimes there are the oblate crosses, in a lot of these uh, old cemeteries, you know, wrought iron, and they rust away. Um, and he said it didn't happen. He made no announcement. It didn't happen. That didn't seem to make any difference. At Cowasis, a similar thing, 751 graves. Um, The chief there said this is not a residential school cemetery, not a grave site. It's a Catholic cemetery. The one, you know, where Trudeau was kneeling with the teddy bear. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was a community cemetery as well. Nobody knows if or how many Indigenous children from the residential school nearby may be buried there. We don't know. Um, I mean, it just went on and on and on like this. Um, And I think, you know, this is almost not even a story about the the legacy of the residential schools. I think this is a story about a very, very strange world that we've all entered, (laughs) where uh, the capacity of journalism to report the news has, you know, collapsed all of the legacy media organizations, you know, half-empty newsrooms or journalists working at home, or, you know, something like, I think, if memory serves, about 2,000 journalists lost their jobs in Canada in the year leading up to the Kamloops story. Um, Tens of thousands of journalists have lost their jobs in the United States over the last uh, few years. And the rise of you know, startups and vanity project kind of news places, and m- importantly, the emergence of English-language propaganda sites controlled by Beijing, uh, you know, RT News. We've seen what RT News did to the Americans, you know, leading up to the Trump uh, victory. Fortunately, they've been banished because of Ukraine from the cable networks. Um, news sites out of... Caracas uh, news sites, English language news sites out of Iran. It's, all a, it's a weird kind of digital pinball machine. And the story of the residential school graves just kind of bounced around. And nobody said, you know, is any of this actually true? Are we really listening to what the indigenous people are saying here? And uh, that's when things went wrong. That's when things right. went sideways.
1: Well, and, and politicians got involved, too.
2: Very much so. Very much so. I'm of two minds about this. I mean, I I, and I don't want people to think, oh, you can't trust the mainstream media, they're lying, or they're in Trudeau's pockets, you know, what people say. I suppose "Mm -hmm." sometimes there's enough evidence that that might almost be kind of plausible in certain particular cases. Um, But I think there is a case to be made that the Trudeau government wanted its George Floyd moment. And that's what the Trudeau government got. Uh, it was on the exact anniversary of George Floyd's uh, uh, murder uh, in, in Minneapolis, I guess it was. And, you know, all of the, the eruptions in the United States and the riots and, and craziness. And so on that anniversary, there was a lot of George, George Floyd talk and there were marches and demonstrations and memorials. And Carolyn Bennett, who's the Crown Indigenous Relations Minister, was very explicit about that. You know, this is our George Floyd moment. Everybody on Canada has to deal with this. we got to build this uh, uh, understanding about residential schools into our DNA. Uh, we have to, you know, and flags were lowered on, lowered on all government buildings, actually, before the weekend was over, when everybody was talking about this mass grave, uh, you know, that was discovered in this genocidal thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was nuts. And so, yeah, I think, the, you know, there's, there's a case to be made that the Trudeau government just didn't want people to notice that they had been sitting on the Truth and Reconciliation rec, uh, Report's recommendations on, on missing children and on a proper search and enumeration and, uh, you know, layout and GPR analyses of the graves for five years without doing anything. I don't think the Trudeau government wanted anybody to notice that. Mm-hmm. So he could be cynical and say, well, I don't even know if that's cynical. That 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 probably played into it. But also I think the thing to notice is that um, this is just how the Trudeau government rolls. You know, that horrible, horrible massacre in Texas. You know, Trudeau wants to sort of step into the vanguard of the, you know, culture wars. and Oh, well, well I'm going to do all of these gun control things in Canada. The Supreme Court's leak uh, of of that draft decision in Roe versus Wade. You know, Trudeau gets out there in front of the cameras and talks about how American women who want abortions can come to Canada and we're going to do better things about abortions in Canada. Um, you know, during the Black Lives Matter uh, uproars of 2020, he gets photographed taking a knee you know, he wants to be kind of like, I don't know, Meghan Markle or, you know, one of those Instagram influencers like Selena Gomez. I mean, that's Canada's kind of like a G7 country that's run by a social media marketing agency. Sometimes. So yep. I think that had a lot to do with it, too. Um, but it's, it, my point is that and I have some background in this. I mean, I, I confess, you know, um, I have some familiarity with this issue. Um, I co-authored that book. I've spent a lot of time working with Indigenous people, uh, covering Indigenous affairs for the Vancouver Sun for the last 10 years, years, or for 10 years before I left. Um, So I have some familiarity with that whole subject, but I think it's almost not even about Indian residential schools. It was about white people losing their brains, And, and, and something weird happened last year. We had this frenzy. And it's it's a real irony, a real paradox that although this was supposed to be, and I think a lot of people, I should say, and please don't get me wrong, genuinely didn't really know very much about residential schools, were very touched and moved by all the stories and the backgrounders and and so on about the horrible, horrible institutions that they'd become. And, you know, maybe some good came of it in that way, Mm Um, but um, what I've got my eye on is um, how badly uh, we got the story wrong um, and some of the very disturbing reasons for why that might be so.
1: Let me just quickly ask you, I mean, the idea that you're engaging in some kind of residential school denial or that those who are um, (laughs) are are going to counts on, on this. I mean, your thoughts on, on some of the reaction you, you've seen. Yeah,
2: well, I mean, it's that's the paradox, too. Um, very little of the, you know, really weird agro has come from indigenous people. In fact, I've had a number of uh, of uh, uh, indigenous scholars and activists uh, either publicly or privately reaching out to me and saying, hey, hang in there, man. Uh, and the people who are shouting the loudest and calling you a residential schools denier there's one guy particularly. I mean, this is a ridiculous concept, by the way. He's a prophet, University of Manitoba. He's a bit of a clown. He's kind of made a fool of himself last year by championing the "burn it all down" polemics. Uh, you know, when all the churches were being burned, and the year before that, uh, you know, he. And I think he's probably best known around Vancouver uh, for having claimed that the Vancouver Canucks jersey logo uh... Of the killer whale is cultural appropriation and uh, all the indigenous people just told me who the hell are you shut up we like it and it's not even co-salish go away mm-hmm. it was hilarious and so he defines this thing called cultural the residential schools denialism uh... and and then w- which he basically uses to attack anyone who doesn't go along with his rubbish and interestingly if i'm engaged in the things that i am said to be uh, you know, the evidence against me is uh, for writing things and saying things that the Kamloops chief, Rose Casimir, has said, that the chief at Chief Joseph at uh, St. Eugene's said, that um, uh, the Kawas people say at Marieville, that the chief at Shubenacadie in Nova Scotia said so... If I'm guilty of I'm sorry, if I'm guilty of residential schools denialism, I guess all of these residential school survivors are too. I mean, it's just a ridiculous thing and it's designed to shut down a conversation. And the conversation that the sort of residential schools anarchs uh, want to have is about Canada's, you know, irredeemably uh, white supremacist, uh, racist colonial genocide, la-la-la-la-la. I didn't know that was the conversation we we, 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 anybody wanted to have except for this, this, this character and a small circle of friends. It's certainly not the conversation that any of the local indigenous people directly involved in these alleged discoveries, non-discoveries. I mean, Penelica, for instance, right? 160 plus grades, resident, a residential school, they didn't even make that announcement. And it was never clear that 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 you know we were talking about you know suspected burials at the residential school site recent discoveries whether they were discoveries at all and the delicate people just okay just go away we're not going to even talk to anybody we'll talk to people when it's appropriate just leave us alone so you know when you add up the 1300 that's what you're left with and i'm sorry i my job you know as a journalist is to notice this. The first question that we should be asking is, is this true? And, you know, it's obviously true because it's been painfully documented. Criminal trials, everything. The extent of brutal sexual, psychological, emotional abuse that so many of those students were subjected to Uh, the deprivation, the malnutrition, the disease, those massive mortality rates. We know these. We know these things. But when, you know, the the interesting thing about, one of the interesting things about this paroxysm last year, this sort of psychotic episode, is that the, you know, the most the the, the allegations that were if I can call them allegations, that were sort of driving all of these incidents. We don't even know who made these allegations. Who, who, Who says this? And it's like, well, a chief says that, and, you know, misreports it, gets the story wrong. Chief says that the Language and Culture Committee says that somebody who is identified, unidentified, says that they either saw something or saw, or, or talked to somebody who saw something. Who? Like, what the hell? You know, the job of a journalist is to, is to ask that question, is it true? And... The interesting thing for me about the weird world that we have entered is this conflation between knowledge and belief. These are two different things. We are asked, we were being asked to believe, not only asked to believe, told to believe certain things that we were told Indigenous people were claiming, when pretty well all the time they weren't, And anybody who didn't subscribe to this belief was a heretic of some sort, but, you know, we'll call them residential schools tonight, you know, officially registered bad person. Uh, (laughs) um, And and this is, I think, you know, uh, something that is a a defining feature of the age, and it is related to the collapse of and the retreat of democracy worldwide every year over the last 16 years, 17 years. Uh, you know the withering of liberal democracies, the the absolute shriveling of uh, of journalism, and the weirdness that's happening in the universities as well. All of the usual checks and balances, yeah. peer review, fact checking—we don't even do that anymore.
1: Terry, we gotta leave it there, but I do appreciate the conversation. I'll urge people go to nationalpost.com, read this for yourself much more as well, more background and your research, the real story Terry, all the best. Thanks for joining us here.
2: Thanks a lot, Rob.
1: Well, good afternoon, folks. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this uh, Monday afternoon. You can reach us in Edmonton, 780-496-0063, in Calgary, 403-974-8255. Later in this hour, we're going to talk about the passing of Ronnie Hawkins, uh, passed away over the weekend uh, at 87, and how this Southern rockabilly artist came to Canada, became such a hugely impactful and influential figure in Canadian rock music. Writer-broadcaster Alan Cross joins us coming up after 2.30. We're still awaiting details here this afternoon on new gun control measures being announced by the prime minister. Legislation to be tabled uh, in the House of Commons uh, press conference set for some point this afternoon in the nation's capital. Are we to believe it's just a coincidence that the federal government is announcing new gun control measures less than a week after this horrific massacre at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas? That much like we saw in the aftermath of uh, the leak of this draft ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court on on Roe v. Wade. And we saw the federal government uh, making announcements related to abortion access. Are these culture debates in the United States uh, spilling over into Canada? Is this cynical politics on the part of the federal government? People see what's happening in the United States, they're worried about it, maybe someday happening here, uh, and the government is uh, jumping in to say, we're going to make sure that doesn't happen. Now, it sounds like the announcement today is going to involve uh, some further restrictions on the uh, capacity size of of magazines, mandatory buyback with regard to these so-called assault-style firearms and We'll see what else there is. So joining us to talk a bit about why we're having this conversation here, the differences between Canada and the U.S. when it comes to, to firearms, laws, crime, culture. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon. Someone who's written extensively about uh, all of the above, Matt Gurney, columnist, co-founder of The Line, theline.substack.com. Matt, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
0: Good to be here. There's something very familiar about all this. Bit of deja vu, huh?
1: Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely feeling it, for sure. And I mean, look, at some level, I, it, maybe it's smart politics. People are worried. People are thinking about this. People are talking about it. So you jump in. You fill that void. Isn't that kind of politics 101?
0: The liberals are the best politicians in the country. I mean, federally. like the, your Your mileage will vary based on what province you're in, how the provincial liberals or their analogs do. But federally, they're the best politicians. I'm not saying you have to like their policy. I'm not saying you have to agree with the direction they're setting, but just at the raw level of politics, they're the best. Mm -hmm. And, you know, think of just the last election, right? I mean, I'm doing math on the fly here, which is never a good idea for a journalist, like nine months ago. And (laughs) yeah, and O'Toole was way overperforming and the Liberals were reeling and they took like a weekend, they retuned, they came out. And they didn't they didn't actually unwind any of the gains the O'Toole or the Conservatives had made, but they stopped it. Like, like the, the Liberals reassessed, they looked at the campaign, they shifted, and they negated the conservative momentum and they ended up basically ruining Aaron O'Toole's spell as leader by doing this. <laughs> Never underestimate how good these guys are at politics. That's not an endorsement of the policy, but their political skills federally in this country are unmatched.
1: Look, if if the government I mean they've been the government for seven years, if they genuinely believe that we have some large gaps in our, our gun regulations, then then fine. They I mean, you know, make the case for that then I guess. But again, are we really to believe that this isn't linked to what happened last week in the US?
0: Well, I mean, far be it for me to tell anyone what to believe, but that old joke about having a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Like Look, in the first Trudeau term, his majority term, 2015 to 2019, the Liberals came out with Bill C-71. It was a comprehensive review and reform of Canadian firearms regulations. I'm not going to get into the details of it. Honestly, the details don't matter. Suffice it to say, I thought some of it was good, I thought some of it was bad, and I thought some of it was meh. Just kind of like neutral. But what Bill C-71 reflected was the honest, serious, thoughtful, liberal party view on gun regulation in Canada. They spent almost a year coming up with it. They went through all the committees. They consulted with all the experts. And ultimately, they ended up just nibbling a little bit at the edges. They didn't really propose any significant changes. And at the time, I wrote a column and I said, this is an admission, as much as they might hate to make it, that our gun control laws in this country actually work. And then, you know, they they passed it and they walked away and they didn't touch gun control for a couple of years. But what happened is that they lost their majority. They became a minority government and they're increasingly dependent on vote efficiency in uh, urban areas, uh, Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal. There aren't a lot of liberal MPs outside the cores of major cities or large urban areas. They, in the last election, 2021, They basically won, like, 30 or 40 seats in this country by such tight margins that a 1% swing to the Conservatives would mean we'd have Prime Minister O'Toole today. The Liberals can't get much more efficient. They need to bring out their urban-based voters. It's all they have left, and they're really good at doing this here. So every time—and I'm glad you mentioned abortion in your intro, because abortion is very much the same as this. Every time there's big news in the United States about abortion— the Liberals in Canada will go after the Conservatives on abortion, or they will propose some new change to our own laws that they could have made any time between 2015 and now. It's the exact same thing on guns. And I I said at some length on Twitter today, we have to ask ourselves, as Canadians, as voters, what do we want our gun control laws to do? And I mean that at a very fundamental level. What, What are we seeking to accomplish? If the Liberals want to change policy, okay, fine. Like That that says that they think there's something wrong with the status quo and that a policy change will fix it. And as I said on Twitter, and I'll turn this into a full column eventually, I'll pop you a link when it's up. Up until about four years ago, maybe even three years ago, I think the liberals and the conservatives fundamentally agreed on the big picture. They fundamentally agreed on what the policy objective of gun control was. And the policy objective of gun control is to minimize gun violence with the firearms that are lawfully regulated in Canada. There's not much you can do with gun control about smuggled-in guns, but you can try to keep a lid on violence committed with the legally possessed guns. But about three years ago, that started to change. And I don't know, am I a cynic for noting that they lost their majority and became completely dependent on urban voters about three years ago? Right now, today, I I don't think you can look at the liberal gun control policies that they're proposing. And we'll see whatever they announce in a couple of hours. You can't look at it and say that this is a series of proposals that is designed to minimize the negative consequences of lawful civilian ownership of firearms. Increasingly, Liberals are treating civilian ownership of firearms itself as the problem. It's not a thing that's just part of a regulated system anymore. It's something they want to go away. The fact that they announce it every time gun control or, again, as you said, abortion is in the news, well, what conclusion should a reasonable observer reach other than that it's political?
1: Yeah. Well, look, here's the thing, and I can't predict the future. I don't know what these debates are going to look like, you know, in 10 or 15 years in this country, but... We can look at the reality of now. I mean, we, we look at abortion uh, and, and, you know, the 30 plus years since the Morgenthaler decision of what's happened here and the state of the debate here. Just look at the reality of it. When we look at, at firearms regulation, let's be honest about our status quo. There is something remarkably different in the United States when it comes to gun culture, gun laws, the politics, all of it. I'm not going to say that we'll never be like that, but I, I'm pretty comfortable saying that today we're nothing like that.
0: No, we're nothing like that. And and again, like in the aftermath of the shooting in, in, in Uvalde in Texas, well, we don't know everything. There's a lot we still don't know, and I don't want to rush any conclusions. My hot takes can wait. Like we, we can let the investigation unfold. But we already know enough. To know that you could not repeat that exact situation in canada we i'm not saying we can't have mass shootings in canada because of course we have but based on what we know about what happened in texas the gun laws we already have would have already prevented that or at least delayed it and i know thats i mean delaying a gun tragedy is is cold comfort of course but like at a certain point you can only hypothesize so much What we can say with absolute certainty is that the Texas shooting would not have happened in that situation in Canada because the guy would not have been able to just buy two AR-15s on his 18th birthday. He would not have been able to have high-capacity magazines. You know, if he had gone through the trouble of getting licensed, he could eventually have, have bought guns and there would have been... A period of time where the license was processed and it would have taken time to get him to him. Right now it's it, there are delays of months in that. Not even for gun control reasons, just because of pandemic related disruption release reasons. So look, every time there are tragedies abroad, it's a good thing to look at them and to ask ourselves, is this giving us anything we should learn about our own country? But in the specific policy sense, no, this one doesn't. But like I said to you before sometime in the last three years what the liberals are focused on as the problem has changed this is no longer about improving the policy it is now the position they won't say this you know the rhetoric hasn't changed but their actions have they now view the problem as the fact that civilians own guns that the liberals don't think they should why not because of policy related reasons like there's no particular incident in canada they're pointing to They just don't think they should, and I, again, for the third time, call me cynical, man, but is it weird that this started right around the time they lost their majority and they've been fighting it out against the NDP for progressive votes? I hate to be this cynical, but that's where I am.
1: It is curious, though. I mean, a lot of this feels like gun control just for the sake of of gun control, right? So that they're seen to be talking about it. Why do you think, though, they hold off? on what some gun control advocates have long pushed for, the idea of banning handguns. It's there. It's on the table. It's something meaningful. It would certainly be controversial. Why do you think they they resist on that,
0: though? Because they want to hold it for later. Like, it's not a surprise that every time, and abortion and guns are the two issues, every time something happens, the liberals have something ready to go. They are very good at politics. Like... I hate to be blunt about this, but if the liberals actually thought their gun control plans were about saving lives, they would have done it already. It would be unconscionable for them to go, hey, here's something we could do that would prevent a lot of murders, and we just haven't gotten around to it yet. If they actually thought that their actions here would be preventing murders, preventing crimes, saving lives, they would do it already. They dribble these things out so that they always have an announcement to make, after a high-profile incident. So we have the leaked Roe v. Wade decision in Politico in the United States. Boom, the prime minister is out the next day talking about legislative protections for abortion. Buffalo and Uvalde shootings, all of a sudden we're talking about magazine uh, capacity limits in this country. Like, Folks, again, I don't want to tell anyone how to think here, but if you haven't noticed the pattern, I don't really know what to say
1: we'll see what's in that announcement. And uh, as you say, I suspect this will not be the last. Uh, much more at uh, theline.substack.com. And uh, folks can follow you on Twitter at Matt Gurney. Matt, oh, it was a pleasure. Thanks for joining us here. Thanks, man. Take care. Cheers. Uh, Matt Gurney, uh, columnist, writer, uh, co-founder of The Line, uh, theline.substack.com. So we'll see what's in this announcement. But I, I think Matt's bang on in, in terms of the motivation here. Uh, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely politically motivated. That's for sure. All right, we got a lot more still to get to in this hour. My name is Rob Breckenridge. We are back with more right after this.
2: Come on, Robin, let's take a little walk, Teddy. Who do you love? Who do you love? Who do you love? Who do
1: you love? Well, yeah, that was uh, the legendary Ronnie Hawkins performing with the band. In the um, documentary, The Last Waltz, which was a documentary of the tour called The Last Waltz, which was supposed to have been the farewell tour by the band. The band was a band comprised of protégés of Ronnie Hawkins, seen as an incredibly influential band, which obviously speaks to how influential Ronnie Hawkins was. The band used to be known as The Hawks. They were the band that backed Ronnie Hawkins. He scouted them. He found that talent. He developed that talent. And he did it in Canada. Ronnie Hawkins was born in Arkansas in 1935, two days after Elvis Presley was born, in fact. Uh, The southern rockabilly artist uh, made his way north to our country and became incredibly influential in Canadian music, period. He passed away over the weekend at the age of 87, an opportunity to look back on a really remarkable life and quite a fascinating and unique story in the world of music, and especially Canadian music. Uh, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon for more, uh, veteran uh, music writer, broadcaster, historian, Alan Cross, much more at ajournalofmusicalthings.com. Alan, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. <sighs>
3: It's too bad that we have to talk about the uh, the passing of Ronnie. He just seemed to be this unkillable guy who was always going to be with us. Yeah. I mean, this is a guy that's been, that, that's he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2003. Yet uh, he lived to the age of
1: 87. Yeah, it's it's remarkable. But um yeah, what what a life. What an impact. I mean, what a unique figure is mentioned. You know, someone born in Arkansas, grows up in, you know, amid all of this rockabilly music and somehow makes his way to Canada. How did he end up in Canada, first of all?
3: Well, it was uh, Conway Twitty who <laughs> uh, uh, decided, who suggested that he move here. Ronnie had been in the Army. He was there for six months. Uh, and then decided that, you know what? Being in, in, in the U.S. isn't for me. So in 1958, he relocated to Canada. And he brought uh, this this rock and roll sensibility with him. Now... At that time, Canada was a pretty middle-of-the-road musical backwater. <laughs> uh, there really wasn't much going on here, especially in terms of rock and roll. And uh, he brought this music, the blues, rockabilly, uh, the type of R&B that was was hot on American Radio at the time. He brought it with him and put together this group, the Hawks, with Lee Von Helm, a fellow person from Arkansas. And originally, uh, those guys that formed the band, Robbie Robertson, Rick Denko, Garth Hudson, and Richard Emanuel. And he drilled them. He rehearsed them. And they played endless shows. Uh, and they became extraordinarily competent players. He was a lot like James Brown in the sense that he would would not tolerate sloppiness yeah. in his band. And uh, they became very good musicians. And after Bob Dylan poached them in 1965, there were a bunch of other people that came along. Um, that, you know, bands like uh, Robbie Lane and the Disciples who played up and down Young Street. Uh, there was uh, members of Janis Joplin's Full Tilt Boogie Band, another Hamilton band called Crowbar. There was Skylark, there was Barefoot and a bunch of others. Uh, meanwhile, Ronnie just kept playing and playing and playing. He never really had a lot of hits, but he became this thing on the Canadian music scene this this established mentor godfather on the Canadian music scene uh pretty much until totally
1: he died. Yeah, and I saw a clip of him talking about, you know, working with uh, the Hawks and how he would have them perform or rather rehearse 5 days a week and he said, you know, it's a way to keep them out of trouble and uh that way you're not you're not blowing your money on so he saw it as as it was good for them and obviously then you're perfecting your craft which they did. Yes. So the you Hawks know, they, became they, the band, and you know they were hugely influential.
3: Well, yes. So uh, 1965, Bob Dylan comes to Toronto. He sees uh, the Hawks playing with his buddy Ronnie. Uh, and I think I want to say it was at a club called the Brown Derby on Yonge Street. He says, you know what? I'm going electric. I need a backup band. I'm taking you guys. And at that time, Canada's, like I said, this backwater. And, you know, these five guys playing behind Ronnie have an opportunity to go to America with one of the greatest, biggest rock stars, uh, music stars in the world at that time, and uh, of course they're going to go. So they go, they play with Dylan, uh, Dylan gets into a motorcycle accident and was off the table for a while, so these guys are in upstate New York with nothing to do, so they start recording their own songs. In 1968, they release an album called Songs from Big Pink, which was the name of the house that they were living in, 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 in New York. And uh, they basically, the band, as the band, invents this new genre called Americana. Interesting for uh, a Canadian band to you know, say that they invented that. Uh, hugely influential between '68 and '76, and uh, they become the first band to, uh, first Canadian band to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame.
1: And so when people refer to him as the father of Canadian rock and roll, like that—that's not hyperbole, right? There, there's a lot to that.
3: There, there is a, there, there is. Yes, I mean he again, you know, we go back to what the Canadian music scene was like in 1958, and it, it I mean, we didn't have a lot of of, 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 you
4: know,
3: it just wasn't happening, you know, yeah. compared to what it became, and we didn't have the history of the blues. We didn't have the history of R&B that right. the United States did. Ronnie brought that music north, not only with him, but he attracted and had all these friends who would come up from the States and play these shows and expose Canadians to this music. And that became the basis of a nascent Canadian rock sound that endured through the late 1950s and into the 1960s. And then we have the Yorkville scene in Toronto, and then things begin to you know, evolve uh, from coast to coast. And by the time the Canadian content rules came into effect in 1971, we were, uh, you know, ready to take on the world, or at least uh, attempt to.
1: You know, it's funny. I mean, if, if you've ever seen an image, there's a picture of uh, John Lennon and Yoko Ono on a skidoo. Yes. That, that's a Ronnie Hawkins story. Like, they came to Canada to stay with him, to hang out with them. Like, he literally knew, like, everyone who was everyone in music. He did.
0: He really did.
3: Uh, this was December 1969. John and Yoko were on their, you know, peace and love tour. Uh, and I want to say that they, um, uh, yes, it was in Mississauga. Yeah, I think so. Ronnie yeah. was living in, in Mississauga at the time. And, and, and John and Yoko needed a place to stay, stay. And Ronnie said, ah, come on, stay with me. So they did. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and that was, you know, a, a very important part of, of uh, uh you know John and Yoko stay in Canada at that time. Now earlier that year, 19, June of 1969, John had played his first solo show outside the Beatles as part of the uh, Rock and Roll Revival in Toronto, and uh, that began sort of a, a bit of a love affair with this
1: country. And it's interesting. You mentioned it earlier. I mean, you, you can you look at his uh, his the songs he put out. He never really charted on on the album charts. He didn't have really any big hit songs, but. You know, he kept making music through the 60s, through the 70s, through the 80s. Like, he stayed active all those years, right? So he was still really committed to, to that side of it. It wasn't just, you know, he was training these protégés. He was he was making music, too. He,
3: he was making music. I mean, there's a lot of Ronnie Hawkins records, uh, not a lot of hits there, but, you know, he played an awful lot. And because he was so well-connected, mostly with the people that he mentored, um, you know, he you know, kept his career going and going and going and going.
1: Yeah, and you think back, I mean, had he not made his way to Canada? I mean, you know, obviously rock and roll was, was emerging as a popular genre, and, and it would have emerged in some form here in Canada, clearly. But uh, had it not been for, for Ronnie Hopkins and, and that faithful decision to, to try out this, this new country, obviously that trajectory would have been so incredibly different.
3: I would call him an accelerator. Uh, you know, by the late 50s, we had top 40 radio stations playing, you know, Elvis and, and so on. But um, Ronnie was the guy that, that really got things moving in these clubs and taverns where you, uh, you know, before Ronnie came along, the entertainment that you would get would be maybe some somebody at a piano or uh, maybe nothing more than a TV out in the corner. Suddenly, it was cool to have live music in these places and, and you know, nothing develops a scene faster than a bunch of musicians hanging together, playing together, and audiences being attracted to see that. And th- that strip along Young Street, from about, it was about from Queen Street to Girard in downtown Toronto, uh, there were all these taverns, and clubs, and bars, and cocktail lounges. And you know, one would have you know Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks playing. The next one would have Oscar Peterson playing jazz. The next one would have some folk singer. The next would have uh, like an R and B group that had come up from the United States. And you know, Ronnie kind of ruled that that whole area with with his bands. And, uh, you know, that's where this this nascent, this this Canadian sound really began.
1: And family, it's such an interesting part of his story. I mean, you know, especially in the world of music, this this is definitely not not the norm. I mean, he, he got married, I think, in his late 20s. Married for sixty years, uh, so he's survived by his wife. Uh, his he's got uh, I know a son who played guitar with him and has played guitar with him for a long time. His daughter is uh, a, a singer as well, and she performed with him. Like family was was hugely important to him.
0: Yeah,
3: somebody says he. Uh, I was talking to somebody today, and she said that uh, he. <laughs> she's got some uh, um, uh, Ronnie Hawkins Adirondack Mustoka chairs. <laughs> so, yeah he really loved this this this, this country and and uh loved the people i mean i know some people who, who know ronnie very well and he was just this extraordinarily hospitable guy that just loved to hang out
1: yeah big loss but obviously a huge impact uh, much more as mentioned the journal of com. you got a great write-up uh, on the website alan always appreciate it thanks for making time for us here today you bet all the best uh that's alan cross music writer historian broadcaster host of the ongoing history of new music podcast and uh yeah you can read more to journal of uh, looking back at the remarkable life and uh, impacts of uh ronnie hawkins Anyway, well we'll get some other stuff to get to i do want to get to uh the phones here because we got brock on the line brock thanks for calling in
4: hey rob how are you doing today
1: doing good so i understand you, you had a chance to play with ronnie
4: I did. Uh, so I play a Hammond B3 organ, and back in the 90s, I had my organ parked at the National Hotel down in Inglewood because I was hosting a jam there, and it's kind of like fishing. You dangle a B3, <laughs> and your phone rings. So I got a phone call from Kelly J. from Crowbar, and he said that the Hawk was coming into town to play, and would I like to play with him? And, of course, the answer was yes. And so move ahead to the rehearsals. Uh, Amos Garrett, Midnight Out the Oasis, Kelly J. from Crowbar, King Biscuit Boy, and several other musicians, and little old, nobody knows him, Brock, on the stage. Uh, it was an amazing experience for me. Uh, not quite as amazing as talking to him and his wife offstage about all the stories and all the things that he'd done in his life, uh, you know, down in the States, uh, you know, having shotguns fired at their station wagon when they pulled away from a co- uh, club because they had colored musicians, and just an amazing story. Uh, you know, felt really sad when he got uh, pancreatic cancer, uh, he lived in a place in Muskoka called Mortgage Mansion, still trying to pay it off. I don't know if he ever did it or not, and I hope he did for his wife's sake. Uh, but, you know, just a wonderful gentleman, very family-oriented, and, uh, you know, it was uh, kind of instrumental in, in my music career, which advanced uh, from them over the years, and I won't go into it, but I got to play with a lot of other famous musicians, and that was the stage where it all started with that gentleman, and God bless him, may he rest in peace.
1: Great story. Brock, thanks for sharing that with us. Really appreciate it. You bet. All right, take care. And there you go. So there's uh, another account of just what kind of a guy he was. So well-liked. And you think about somebody who's that connected, somebody who's that influential, somebody who seems to know everybody. I mean, that's part of it, right? Because people knew him. They liked him. They respected him. And, you know, hearing those kinds of stories, too, just how down-to-earth he was, you know, when he was just meeting people for the first time. So that's pretty cool. So, yeah, I mean... Maybe not a household name to to at least a younger generation of Canadians, didn't have a whole roster of hit records. When you look at the emergence of what became known as rock and roll in this country, late 50s, early 60s, he was a huge factor. And then spawning, you know, all these other influential musicians, right? So just, you know, continuing passing on that that influence. So he definitely mattered in, in a good way.